found fundraising really hard because I found it really difficult to genuinely go to men, mostly, in suits and ask them for money for a business that really catered to women. That they would then turn around and say, well, you know, um, I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask my, my wife if she likes this. And if she does, then maybe. And if not, well, you know. And I was like, you're missing the point completely. Hey, everyone. I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Misha Nunu, to our show today. Misha is a New York-based women's wear designer who is known for her sustainable, sleek, and timeless ready-to-wear pieces. From the time Misha was a young girl, she was fascinated with fashion and empowering women as she witnessed the dichotomy of women's roles growing up in both Bahrain as well as London. Her upbringing gave her an appreciation for different cultures and an understanding of women's lives in different places. After gaining recognition from a reputable buyer for a few pieces she created for herself, Misha decided to launch her own namesake fashion brand with the goal of having her customers feel strong, confident, and empowered in all aspects of their life. Misha was a first designer to use social media as a venue for fashion shows, debuting her spring-summer 2016 collection on Instagram, and was a pioneer in using the made-to-order business model, which promotes sustainability in an industry that is known for producing so much waste. Misha is also passionate about using her business as a platform for change, and most notably collaborated with her dear friend Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, for the Smart Works charity, where every shirt sold, Misha donated one to the work wardrobes of women in need. Misha won industry recognition when she became a finalist for the 2013 CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund and was named one of Forbes's 30 Under 30, as well as Crane's New York Business's 40 Under 40. Welcome to the show, Misha. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very excited to speak to you. Yes, likewise. And shout out to our mutual friend, Benita, for connecting us. And when I did more research about your upbringing, your background, and really learn more about how you've created and pivoted many times in your business, I figured you'd be the perfect guest to have on our show. So I'm really looking forward for our listeners to learn more about you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to impart whatever knowledge I possibly can. So I'd love to start from the beginning. I know you're born in the Middle East in Bahrain to an English mother and an Iraqi Jewish father, and you ultimately moved to London with your family when you were around 10 years old. Can you share more about your upbringing? Because I know it's really impacted the way you viewed your own life and the woman that you are today. Yeah, I think, um, so yes, that's all correct. And I, um, I moved to England around 10 years old, and I think you know, the years that I spent in London were such formative years. But I think growing, being born in Bahrain and growing up and seeing the cultural differences that exist there, particularly for women. Um, and Bahrain is one of the more liberal Middle Eastern countries um, that you'll find. So I think that I was at, at times um, maybe a little bit surprised by how uh, women were treated and how um, women would cover themselves. And whilst um, maybe that didn't occur to me, I, I, even though I was growing up in Bahrain, I spent every summer and winter um, in the UK or traveling in other parts of um, the world, whether we were going to Italy or whether we were going to Thailand for a, a Christmas holiday. Um, and I'm an only child. And I think that once I started to live in England and I saw how women were treated so so vastly differently to what I had seen growing up and the expectations of what women could do versus the limitations of what women could or couldn't do in the Middle East, I think it started to shape and form who I am and really um, my mission, which was to really help women um, in the way that I wanted to, which was through addressing them. What an incredible background to have the dichotomy of both worlds, right? Of being in the Middle East at such a young age and then yeah. moving to London. I, I can course, only imagine. The Middle East was extraordinary in that, you know, it never rained. So when I moved to England or actually even when I would go visit my, uh, my mother's family in the UK, 
and it would rain, I would be like the wild child out on the streets with Wellington boots on, you know, jumping in puddles. And um, I think it gave me this great appreciation for camels and desert dunes versus, you know, like this luscious English countryside and whenever it felt cold. So I think I I had this... um, great appreciation for the seasons after living in a very, very warm country. But to, to, to that end, I actually, I, I don't like the cold weather, so I can't stay anywhere that's really cold. Um, same, (laughs) same. I tried it, did the, went to school in Boston, lived in New York, but back, back in LA now. (laughs) Smart. Yeah. And I know, you know, growing up in a, in Bahrain, I know you did mention, you know, relative in the Middle East, it is more liberal, more open-minded. I believe the women are not covered there. It's um, not enforced. A lot of women do just culturally, but um, it's not enforced by law. I see. And I'm curious, you know, given that both your parents were expats in Bahrain and you were the only child, did they want you to be this entrepreneur and business leader or what were their expectations for you? Not at all, actually. Um, You know, my mom always um, definitely was enthusiastic about a work ethic. So whether that was schoolwork, whether that was after school activities, sports, anything like that, or, you know, working, doing chores, helping around the house. You know, we had um, the most amazing person that still works. Um, my, my family still have the home that I grew up in, uh, in Bahrain. And um, the ha- basically our head housekeeper still works there. And um, he would always do anything to make sure that I wasn't in trouble. And, you know, if I hadn't done a chore that he would make sure that he did it for me or whatever. And my mom would get so annoyed because she'd be like, you are not helping her by doing it for her. She has to do it for herself. So I think my mom instilled a great deal of discipline in me. Um, But no one was, I mean, my, my dad is entrepreneurial. He took over the family business, but no one was saying to me, oh, you should be an entrepreneur. Or, I mean, I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, you know, who knows? Um, there wasn't a huge amount of expectation placed on me in having a career. Um, it was kind of a very happy-go-lucky upbringing. And, um, and I kind of shaped a lot of that myself. And I think that the rigor and the discipline that was instilled in me from being a young girl definitely translated into being a rigorous and very, very disciplined woman that I am today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and what great values for your mother to instill in you and also to see the possibility of being an entrepreneur from your father, even if you didn't know at an early age. Right. And I know one thing that was a theme for your upbringing is you've always loved fashion, but you didn't necessarily go to fashion school. You actually went to business school. So I'd love to kind of hear, you know, more about where that interest came from and how you decided to go down the business route versus, you know, fashion and design school? Um, I always loved fashion. When I was young, um, you know, even before I left Bahrain, there was a TV channel called Star TV. And um, it was, you know, kind of all throughout Asia and the Middle East. And they would have like runway shows and they would show like fashion TV, which, you know, doesn't even exist today. And I would sit there glued watching you know, these, these runway shows and the incredible things that were made. And I think I was always much more creative than um, mathematical or scientific in my approach and the things that I enjoyed doing. And when I got a little bit older and I, and I moved to the UK, I think that I started to see how trend-driven, particularly a city like London was. You know, you would see, you would go into central London and you would see people that would you know, dressed as punks with red hair. And then you would go to um, Bond Street and see people immaculately dressed in in suits and tailoring and things like that. Or go to Savile Row, for example, and see men immaculately dressed. And um, I think that dichotomy was really fascinating to me to see people who were outrageous in their creativity and then again, very disciplined in how they dressed. Mm -hmm. And I realized that in between all of that, you could kind of find your own way and you could have a voice for yourself and the way that you presented yourself in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I'm very much a perfectionist when it comes to presentation in anything, whether that's self-presentation or the presentation of your home or whatever that is. And for me, it's very difficult to be around people or live with people who are sloppy in any of that kind of presentation. That's just a a personal preference. Um, And so, again, I guess that comes back to that discipline that was, you know, honed from being a young age of, you know, make your bed and make sure that your shoes look good. And, you know, why would you ever go out with like something on your collar or something not ironed properly? Um, So 
it all kind of came together and shaped me from there. But I was fascinated by how an outfit could make you feel more confident. And that was always what I took away from, you know, seeing people that were outrageously dressed versus dressed appropriately for work. I saw that there was an inner confidence that was born and that really fascinated me and was something that I wanted to delve into in greater detail. I did go to business school because my parents, um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to work in fashion, but they, I don't think that my parents really believed that there was a huge future for me in fashion. They were like, you know, what does that mean? You're working in fashion, you're going to go work in market. Like, what are you going to do? Um, and so they said, go to business school. It's going to be a great background for you. And whatever you chose, you choose to do. And there was, you know, I snuck in the, it was uh, international business with French. So I got to spend a couple of years in Paris. Oh, that's nice. Snuck in there. Uh, they were like, you know, if, if this, this is going to be a great basis for whatever you're going to do. So I don't know that they necessarily trusted or believed that I knew exactly what I wanted to do at age 14, which I felt that I did, but they really kind of pushed me to go to business school. And actually it was a a really good decision now in hindsight. Yeah, they definitely sound like my dad. He still calls me to this day and tells me it's not too late to go to business school. So I definitely understand their thought process and mentality. So you go to business school, you still have this interest and fascination with fashion. And actually in 2009, during the height of the financial crisis, you wanted to move to New York. You always loved the city. It was a dream and goal of yours to move there. And it was actually a pretty pivotal moment in your career. Can you take us back to the time when you moved to New York and share more about what the experience was like? Because I'm sure it was not easy to get a job at the time. Yeah, so um, it was a difficult time, but I didn't know anything else. So I had always dreamt of living in New York and um, and it wasn't going to be easy to get a visa. So I had to work, you know, basically a friend of my family's was like, I know somebody who has a small, very small company. You'll never have heard of it. It's in the garment district and they produce in the garment district. And I was like, I'll take the job. I'll take, you know, I'll do anything. And, um, I was like, I'll figure out my visa. I'll apply. I'll do the whole application. I'll find the lawyer. I'll do it all. And, um, I was on a J1, which is technically like an apprentice or an intern's visa, uh, for the first 12 to 18 months. And, um, and so, I was very resourceful in how I figured it all out. And um, I was very lucky in that they took me on board. And the best part about that job was that, as I said, they still produce domestically in the garment district. And that is something that is really dying these days. It's so rare. To, you know, had, had I been, you know, 22 years old again and coming over here um, in today's age, would I have found a job that did that? Probably much, much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, production capacity is so much smaller and, and it's just very, very expensive to produce domestically. So I feel very, very lucky to have had that experience. Um, I had a boss there who was extremely tricky and, um, she used to, it was her and I, she was the head designer and I would shadow her. And whenever it was a small office and whenever, I wanted to like go to the bathroom. She would jam her her chair against the door and she'd talk to me about like, so what do you think about this design? What do you think about this? And I was thinking this fabric and I'm like, can I please go to the bathroom? Like you, she would yeah. never let me escape the office. Um, and so it was an interesting place to work, but I have so much respect for the fact that they allowed somebody to come in and who had absolutely no experience and and came from business school and, you know, and work there. Yeah, for sure. And I know, you know, at that point, you were really involved with every aspect of production. And like you said, it doesn't exist now anymore. I actually had a very short stint at American Apparel here in LA, building out their e-commerce platform. And I was there when, you know, they were manufacturing in LA still, and they closed it down. And it broke my heart because they were one of the largest manufacturers in North America. So, you know, what a beautiful experience for you to really be, you know, involved and in the nitty gritty of what it takes to create something from scratch. I mean, it was a moment in time and I feel very, very lucky. 
Absolutely. And you were always very interested in creating your own unique pieces and designing them yourself, getting the fabrics from different vendors. And I know there was one person that really came into your life that really put the idea in your head about launching your own brand and business, because that wasn't necessarily something that you knew you wanted to do at the time. So can you take us back to that story and talk to us more about how the idea of your brand came to life? Yeah. So I was really lucky because I think it takes real chutzpah to launch a business. I think that the older we get and the the more places we've worked and seen how hard it is to sustain a business, the less likely we are to actually launch a business of our own. Mm -hmm. And um, for that reason alone, I feel super lucky. Um, But on top of that, I, so on the side of uh, doing my, my normal day job, I had created eight samples, um, pieces that, you know, had fabric sourced from Paris or from, you know, uh, far reaching parts of Northern England where they still produced, you know, beautiful tweeds, um, amazing melting wools. So I produced eight jackets and coats. And again, this was the financial crisis. It was 2009. So my idea behind that was that I wanted to have these beautiful um, outerwear pieces because I was always going to be wearing the same either leggings or pair of jeans and t-shirt or cashmere sweater underneath. So I wanted these lovely kind of toppers. And, um, I was sitting at lunch, um, at a place called prune on the Lower East side in New York city. And, um, I was with three girlfriends who were a table of four and not the table next to me, but the one over a lady said to me, you know, I really love the jacket that you're wearing. And it was this, um, tweed from a a French mill that actually Chanel buys their uh, tweeds from called Malia Kent. And it was a kind of a French blue and navy blue with a navy blue velvet trim. And it was like a peplum shape and a bell sleeve. And um, she said, I love your jacket. Where is that from? And I said, "Um, oh, thank you so much. I made it. I mean, I didn't actually make it. I just designed it. And, you know, the factory that I worked with my job had made it. And she was like, oh, you know, do you make anything else? And I was like, oh, the, the, you know, there's like seven others that I've made or whatever. And she was like, wow. She said, well, um, I'm a buyer at Intermix and um, I'd love to see, you know, these samples if uh, you could cut, bring them in and show me. This was like on a Saturday or a Sunday. And by Wednesday, I had a meeting there. Wow. So, you know, I went in with my little suitcase and opened it up and showed her, you know, my eight samples. And she was like, these are great. Love them. Um, and I walked out of that meeting 45 minutes later with a purchase order for six of the eight styles for about $150,000. And I was floored. And I called um, my dad, first of all. And, you know, I had like slightly sweaty palms and I was like, I I don't know what I've just committed to. Um, I don't have like a corporation. I don't have anything. And um, I was like, you know, I think they want them in about eight to 10 weeks and I don't even have fabric. And he was like, okay, so you need to, so basically he and I figured out like the timeline and backed into it and whatever. And he helped me produce everything because at the time, you know, obviously I was producing inventory. So I had to, I had to pay up front. I worked with the factory that I had the relationship with already in Manhattan. And, um, that was the beginning of it. And from there we worked with Takashimaya who then closed down, um, but Henry Bendel as well. And, um, we grew to work with Bergdorf's and Neiman's and, um, Shopbop and lots of major retailers. Wow. Amazing. And, you know, going back to those early days when you were creating these outfits, did you have any intention or goal to sell it one day? Was that the dream and aspiration or did you just make it for yourself? I guess in a way, yes, the intention was to sell it, but it started and really ended with the fact that I wanted to wear it. And if I was the only person that wore it and maybe my friends, that was fine with me. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to just like in any business of starting anything, just really going to your why and enjoying the process because you never know what the next steps will be. I mean, you never know. You could be sitting at lunch like you and someone's looking at your jacket. And And my favorite, my favorite um, book of all time is called The Alchemist. And, you know, in it talks about beginner's luck and about how we all have this beginner's luck that sets us off on our journey because, you know, we encounter such difficulties thereafter that do we not have this amazing beginner's luck to start us strong, we probably would question whether we were on the right path. And I always think to myself that that is truly the beginning of my journey. It was all about that moment of beginner's luck. 
Yeah. And I mean, also kudos to you for being aware of that opportunity and jumping on it, right? I mean, a lot of people could feel intimidated and say, I have no experience. Like, where am I going to get the money? How do I even fulfill a $150,000 order? So, you know, you even having that confidence to even try this out, I think is huge. And it just shows you never know where your life can take you. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've become better at saying no, but I think when you have opportunities right in front of you like that, you can't possibly say no. You have to say like, yeah. I mean, let's see what it takes you, as you say. Exactly. Exactly. And I know starting out, you still had your full-time job while you were managing this new side business that you had. So what did your life look like at the time? And how did you go about funding this massive purchase order that you got from Intermix? So it was really hard because I had that boss that wouldn't let me out of the office. Right? <laughs> so um, I remember really early on, I had all eight samples and my first, first ever press piece, again, like the most insane thing was, this is when Fairchild still owned, uh, Fairchild that owns Women's Wear Daily also owned W. Mm -hmm. So I uh, said to my boss, I need to go and get lunch. And she was like, um, it's like 1130. And I was like, I'm so hungry. I really have to go. So I, it was St. Patrick's Day. And again, I hadn't been in New York very often and I did not understand the concept of the parades in New York. <laughs> and um, I ended up, I was trying to cross because uh, the garment center is on the west side of Manhattan and I was trying to get to, sorry, yes, trying to get to the east side, which is where the Fairchild offices were for this press appointment. And basically Women's Wear Daily and W had said that they were going to give us the exclusive for this big launch of this new outerwear brand. I mean, like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, wow, like, what is this new? I mean, like this new outerwear brand. I'm like, what? Okay, great. So I'm trying desperately, you know, the parades always run down Fifth Avenue, which is in the center of the city. And I had absolutely no idea. And there I am lugging two garment bags around, trying and sweating because I was like, how am I supposed to get back to my office without my boss firing me. And, you know, I mean, I was like, the paychecks were not big, but I was like, I really need them because otherwise my dad's going to kill me. Yeah, and He would have been like, you've got no job. What are you doing? Um, and so, and of course I was on the visa. So I, um, was desperately trying to get across Fifth Avenue. I was calling the lady that had made the intro to Women's Wear Daily and W who was there. And I was like, in floods of tears. I was like, I'm never going to get across. The policemen won't let me. It's all these drunk people at like 1130 in the morning. I don't know what to do. And um, she was like, don't worry. Like everybody's here. Everybody's calm. I was like, I'm not calm. And so I finally made it. And I was probably about 45 minutes late for the appointment. I thought I've definitely screwed this up. Like, you know, who's going to listen to me? Luckily, they were so nice and they were like, don't worry, it's fine. And it was Bridget Foley, who was the editor at the time, who is kind of a legend in um, kind of fashion journalism. And she said yes and greenlit me being a part of, it was like W wrote a whole thing. I think it was maybe in like a, this by now was probably 2011 issue of, um, you know, like the next seven best designers in fashion. I was like, what? I was like, I'm a designer now. I was like, are you serious? This is amazing. And um, and then of course we got a huge exclusive in Women's Wear Daily. And this is when wholesale was still a big deal. And we got like, again, a double page spread all about, you know, these jackets. And I remember thinking to myself, this is insane. Like, how is this happening? It's just amazing. New York is the best, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm true in New York, you know, I need to move back to New York. <laughs> right. So from a funding perspective, my dad had understood that, um, it was an opportunity and I had had, you know, a serious discussion with him and I'd said, you know, please, will you help me? You know, this is, I'd kind of written out, a, obviously I went to business school. So I'd written out a plan of like financially how it was going to work. And I was like, I'm going to need this to produce it up front. The terms are net 30. Um, you know, once this comes in, then it's going to go against this. And I was, you know, showing him all the numbers and he was like, okay. He was like, I understand. And I believe in you. And I was really lucky. So my margin was probably because I was doing it so quickly. My margin was only about 50%. Um, so I probably needed an upfront investment. Obviously, I had no employees. I, no one was being paid of about $70,000 to produce the product and buy the fabrics. And um, 
And then when we, when we shipped and when we received and we got the money back, I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And then they did a reorder on certain styles. So um, it worked out, but funding in fashion is a very difficult thing and cash flow in fashion is a very different thing. And I, I think you're going to ask me about the on-demand model later on, which is actually something that I came up with five, six, seven years after I first launched my business um, in in order to help figure out and stem that endless, relentless flow of cash that's needed. Yeah, and fashion is so difficult to manage the cash flow because of the margins. I mean, you're seeing even during COVID, the fall of so many department stores and brands. So I'm excited to jump into that a bit later. But I'm sure our listeners are thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, you know, Misha got so lucky with this buyer and now she's getting front of these pretty big women in press. But can you share more about how you got in front of them? So again, I had spoken to somebody, I'd, someone had introduced me, oh, actually the Intermix buyer had said, you should speak to a couple of people because, you know, if something comes out in the store and it's got absolutely no name recognition, which yours won't have any name recognition, it's harder to sell it. And I said, oh, of course, I totally understand that. You know, like that's why the major houses of the world from Louis Vuitton to Christian Dior are so successful. Um, and she said, exactly. So um, speak to this lady and, you know, see what you can do, whatever. And and luckily, the concept was unique enough. And also, it was well-timed because at the height of the financial crisis, people were thinking about if you were purchasing anything, what were you purchasing? And it was different to COVID, of course, because COVID is a different sort of crisis in that we're not going anywhere. So you're not, you don't need to purchase anything other than comfort clothes. But the height of the financial crisis, restaurants are still open. We still wanted to go out. We still wanted to do things. We're still traveling. So what were you purchasing if you were consuming that um, kind of uplifted everything that you already owned? And and the concept was unique. And luckily, it um, really clicked with journalists. Yeah. I mean, timing is everything in any business, right? So it definitely, it's what you were creating was perfect for that time. And you created that virality and that buzz around it. Yes. And I know you talked a bit about this, but starting out, you were in wholesale, right? You were selling yep. to various department stores. And like you said, it was tough to manage the cash flow and the margins are super thin. And you actually decided to go to e-commerce and go direct to consumer. Yeah. So there's so much to unpack there because that was such a pivotal moment in your life. You were going through a divorce. You were scrapping a business and starting it from new. But take us through that journey of what life looked like because so much was happening for you. Honestly, really, really hard. But I think now my takeaway from that time is that I'm an extremely resilient person. And if you can get through those very dark moments, and when I say dark, I mean really dark. Like there were times that I would just be sitting on the floor of my apartment with my dog and I would be in floods of tears. And I was, and I think to myself, what am I doing? Like, why am I even in New York anymore? Like my family aren't here. I'm getting divorced and you know, I don't have to do my business here anymore. Like, you know, I'm changing everything. I'm going to be, it's going to be michanunu.com. So I could live anywhere at this point. Like I don't have to stay in New York city. Like, yes, I built a life here, but I could also upend everything and, and move. And I did actually think very seriously for a second about moving to Los Angeles or moving back to London. And um, for one reason or another, I decided to stay. And uh, and I'm so happy that I did because I actually met my husband and, you know, now he's through and through like New Yorker from the Upper East Side. So, you know, it all works out um, as it's meant to. But I think the truth is it's pure resilience. It was a very, very dark time. And it wasn't dark in that, you know, I didn't have my friends or, you know, I still had my dog. I still had a roof over my head. So I always had a gratitude journal and I would write at the end of the day um, the five things that I was grateful for. And, you know, day to day they would shift slightly, but there would always be three things that I was grateful for. And uh, one was having a roof over my head. One was having my dog Thatcher. And the other was having... Uh, the, the parents, the family that I had. And I, I really genuinely believe that if you can find gratitude, even amongst the darkest moments, you will survive. And people always said to me, like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And I was like, I don't want to be fine. Like, I want to thrive. And that I think was the hardest part because when you're that kind of far down, it's very hard to see how you're going to really get back up again. 
and you just have to take it day by day. It's incremental. Uh, luckily, the business part was something that um, you can really take it incrementally step by step. And going direct to consumer was a, a phenomenal decision and it was really well timed. I was before a lot of other fashion brands, because now, of course, due to COVID, a lot of people are being forced to go direct to consumer. And I think now it's harder even because customer acquisition online is so expensive. Um, but I think you have to be brave and uh, and you have to be resilient. Absolutely. And when you were pivoting from wholesale to direct to consumer e-commerce, did you use the same team that you had? Because you were doing well on the wholesale side. It wasn't that you guys were necessarily doing horribly, but you decided that you wanted to revamp the business and go direct to consumer. So what was that experience like, you know, managing your team and pivoting in that aspect? That was the other really hard part was that I had like an employee, I had a team of 10 and I let go of every single one of them because not one of their, not one of them had experience in this kind of new way of doing things. Um, there was only one person that I wouldn't let go of who was my uh, associate designer, but he was actually, and this was a really dark moment too, he was... Um, taken, uh, he was hired away from me by uh, the team that were relaunching um, a, an American brand, direct consumer in China at the same time. And they were putting a ton of money behind it. And he was like, it's an opportunity that I can't refuse. Like, I'm going to go live in Hong Kong. It's going to be amazing. And I was like, you know, crying. And I was like, I understand. It's fine. It's okay. You go to. And um and when he left, it really also cemented the fact that I had to just change everything and do it all differently. So um, that brand actually folded after seven months and like $7 million of investment that they put behind it. And it was a huge disaster. Um, and he and I are still in touch today, even though we don't work together. But I, I genuinely think that um, everything happens for a reason. And at the time, you were pretty much at the forefront of going direct to consumer. It wasn't as common as it was these days. And I feel like you've always approached fashion and business from a very innovative angle. And I know in 2015, you were actually the first fashion designer to produce a fashion show exclusively on Instagram during New York Fashion Week. And I'm sure people listening today are thinking to themselves, okay, that's pretty common. We see that all the time. But at the time in 2015, you were really a true pioneer. So what motivated you to go down that route? And how did you deal with skeptics at the time? Well, it's interesting. There were many skeptics. First and, and foremost among them was the head of the CFDA at the time, uh, who was no longer the head of the CFDA, the day or a few days before. And, and at this point, I was very, very familiar. I was very well known in the press. And, and I was very, I was a member of the CFDA, which is Council of Fashion Designers of America, which for anybody who doesn't know, which is like the governing body of um, fashion designers in the US. And um, I was like, would you endorse this as being something that is different and the CFDA, you know, backs and gets behind is really interested to see how it goes, blah, blah. And he was like, no, 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 far too risky. No, definitely like we're staying far away from it. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. Thank you. Um, and so what had happened was that in prior years, I had been doing runway shows and I had seen a, as a small designer, my marketing budget compared to other major designers was so small. And of course, I'd grown up in London and in Paris where I hadn't grown up in Paris, but I'd spent two years living in Paris where I had been fortunate enough and really lucky enough to get a seat way, way, way up in the back rows at like Chanel or like nab a seat, nab a standing position at Alexander McQueen when McQueen was still the designer and, and like go to a Selma McCartney show. And I had seen unbelievable real shows, you know, these stunning venues and like major budgets and, you know, Chanel show, they're like flying in the snow and, you know, it's snowing for a winter collection. And so I knew what a show was. And here I was with a minuscule marketing budget in comparison to, to other brands. And I had a lot of imagination, but I couldn't compete. And so that that realization coincided with the rise of social media. And this was back in 2015. And I was watching how my prior two shows, people like Eva Chen, who then became, you know, kind of the fashion person at Instagram, but prior to her becoming that, 
she would be sitting in the front row of my show. And my hope would be that she would take a photograph on her phone and of the collection and post it and tag me on Instagram. That was my ultimate hope. And I was like, if that's what I want, why am I not just engineering everything for that? You know, why am I doing this whole thing with people and crowds and people don't turn up because it's a busy schedule and, oh, missed it. Sorry, go to the next show. I was like, why am I doing this? So I um, spoke to Instagram's team and I spoke to the marketing director at the time. It was a much smaller team, uh, particularly on the fashion side then. And this is pre-Eva being there. And so I was in Palo Alto and um, I said, I've got this idea and it'll be really groundbreaking would you kind of do it in partnership with me? And Instagram were like, you know, we have to be very, very, you know, bipartisan. We cannot kind of sponsor or partner with a brand. And I was like, okay, I understand. I was like, but would you help me then? Because there are a few glitches that are going to make it hard to do this. And they were like, yes, we'll absolutely help you. We get it. You know, the marketing director then became a good friend of mine and she's phenomenal. And, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to circumnavigate things without her really having my back. So I engineered the whole show from doing a photo shoot to thinking that, you know, if you flip your phone this way horizontally and you scroll through Instagram like this, it kind of becomes like one long runway. So I came up with the idea and um, people, I actually, I had to start a new account, unfortunately, um, in order for me to do this and to kind of have a big reveal. And so um I had to decide how to drive traffic to that account because at the time I probably only had like 40,000 Instagram followers. And I was like, that's not enough eyeballs. So thinking consumer first, I thought about who my women were and I enlisted 33 influencers from around the world from, you know, a 15 year old blogger in South Korea to Lena Dunham to Olivia Palermo to Meghan Markle. And I said, I will make a donation in your honor to the women's charity, Women for Women who are an incredible charity and support um, women trying to join the workforce in uh, war-torn refugee company, uh, countries. And I said, if you wear one look in my collection, you can pick whatever look it is and post a picture of yourself in it with this, within this 12-hour time frame. And I had a unanimous yes. Wow. There was one person that said no. And I said great. And so there was this huge pressure to then produce everything in everybody's different size, blah, blah. blah. Um, and it was very, very, very successful. And now five years later, of course, the CFDA are like, yeah. everybody's showing everything on Instagram. And I'm like, like that was supposed to be done, you know, four or five years ago, like get with the program. So I think that's a big problem with fashion is that people are very afraid. And this is what got, goes back to kind of the bravery piece. People are very afraid to do anything different, um, kind of stand out from the crowd. And that was just something that always felt that it was a, a necessary part of how I did business. And this might be a strange question, but when you're in the weeds of, you know, running a business, you're, you're seeing how your competitors at the time are doing things. Do you, how do you create space to maintain that innovation and creativity in your own life? Because, you know, as you know, as an entrepreneur, you can get stuck in doing so many day-to-day things that it's important to step back and be innovative because you've really pivoted your way and, and you were so resourceful in creating these amazing ideas in 2015-2016. Well, thank you. Um, I think that every creative initiative has come from seeing a bit of a problem that I wanted to solve. So I think that I'm a very assertive person and I'm a problem solver. And um, I am really not the best delegator. And and I have other friends who are extremely successful female entrepreneurs, and they generally are some of the best delegators you've ever met. They also lack ego, so they don't need to take credit for things. So they are really happy for somebody else to do something that is their initiative, but they, someone else does it and they don't have to get in the weeds. So I think from seeing other very successful um, female founders and entrepreneurs, a lot of it is actually not being in the weeds. Um, that's a real key to success. Um, but I think for me, a lot of my creativity comes from solving a problem and trying to think, I mean, just as you were saying about a business idea that you had, there's a problem that you wanted to solve. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, our best ideas come from really uh, thoroughly understanding something that we want to make better. Mm-hmm. 
And that's really where my most creative concepts come from. Yeah. I mean, even that's why, you know, during COVID it's so difficult for so many people, but it could be a time of rebirthing and creativity on so many ideas and looking at your life, you've really hit in on those moments and it's really rebirthed different ideas, different businesses. So you're just proving that fact. Yeah. I'm not the kind of person who sticks with something and just keeps beating their head against a wall. I'm like, well, there's a different way of doing this. And you were resourceful. You asked questions. You put yourself out there. You were a problem solver when it came to being innovative yeah. and changing your business multiple times. And I know when you were relaunching your brand, you actually decided to go down the fundraising path. So I'd love to hear more about your experience. And is there anything you wish you knew back then that you know now that you can share with our listeners? God, um, there are some amazing female fundraisers. Um, but I will say that the best ones I've ever met are male. And I think that there is something fundamentally about being a woman. And I think it comes back to a lot of cultural things. But I know in my home, the man took care of the finances, talked about the finances, and the woman didn't have to worry about that, didn't deal with that. And that's a bit more of a traditional way of things being. Um, but I think that we are doing a disservice to our children if we don't try to disengender that... Um, that particular type of role play. I found fundraising really hard because I found it really difficult to genuinely go to men, mostly, in suits um, and ask them for money for a business that really catered to women, that they would then turn around and say, well, you know, um, I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask my, my wife if she likes this. And if she does, then maybe. And if not, well, you know. And I was like, but you're missing the point completely. And um, that felt very sexist to me. And um, in the end, the men that did invest all had daughters. Um, and I ended up doing around basically through friends of friends, friends of family, that kind of thing. Um, but I found fundraising really, really difficult. And I think that it's because I am a really deeply authentic person. And all of that, like fake it till you make it kind of thing. And and BSing that this person is like so interested and, you know, like, oh, I've got 300 left and, you know, that's it. And I, I just couldn't lie. You know, I'd be like, yep, I've got a million open and you can take as much of it as you like, you know, and if not, no worries. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was very, I, I genuine, I, I just found it disingenuous to be any way other than that. And I think to be an excellent fundraiser, you've got to be quite, um, to excuse my language, ballsy. And not be afraid of losing that person because there'll always be other people. So I think what's interesting is that for me, that kind of financial mindset, um, I feel less abundant about it than I do about things like, for example, if something's not working, I'm just going to move on. And I feel like it's an abundant universe in other ways. So that's just, I think, the home that I grew up in where I didn't grow up really talking about those topics. I didn't see anybody fundraising, you know, I grew up with my dad having his own business and it was, it, you know, it had a positive cash flow the whole time. He was never in debt. You know, you never bought a house with a mortgage. You only bought what you could afford, like all of that. So this idea of fundraising was just kind of like a bit of an anomaly to me. Um, and now I've learned so much more about it, but I still really am the type of person that tries to live within their means. Yep. And I know in one of the interviews that you did, you've talked about how some people, and this advice, you know, is relative to whoever you are, but they told you, Misha, like raise as much money as you can. And you being a very logical person, I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on that. Yeah. Because you hear different things. Oh, you know, you, you, if you can get more money, take it, take it now, you know? And I was like, well, I don't even know how I would spend it. And they're like, you'll figure it out, you know, because you need to have cash and your cash balance. So that if there's a rainy day, you know, and I understand that and things like COVID happen and, you know, there is a mentality that speaks to that. And I, I, I get it, but that was just not the person that I was. I was like, this is what I need and this is what I'm going to raise. Maybe I'll raise, you know, five to 10% over that, but I'm not going to raise another 25 to 30% because, you know, I just want to have the cash and sit on it just in case. Um, I am very, very logical about those things. And I do not spend whimsically. I am really, really thrifty. And I've always bootstrapped my business. And it kind of 
bootstrap my life. I'm just not a wasteful person. And, and that is also what drove me to launch On Demand was that I saw how much waste there was in the world and in this industry. And I had a very, very hard time living with that. So waste in any capacity, it's like, it goes back to that sense of like, you know, the way you present yourself. Like, I don't like people that waste things either. Like people who order loads of food at dinner and then don't eat half of it. Like all of that just seems so wasteful to me. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of goes into a question that I had in terms of, you know, sustainability is so core to who you are as a person and also your brand. I'd love to get your perspective on what that means to you in life and in your business. So uh, sustainability in my business is, um, so we produce um, on demand, which I've kind of referenced, but just to explain it, um, we actually don't hold any inventory. So we're an inventoryless fashion brand. And um, for example, if you come into our store in Meatpacking in New York City, um, it's an inventoryless showroom. So you have every different piece and every different size and color. You can try it on. And then we place an order and it's shipped directly to you. So we have a fabric liability and uh, we have all of our patterns marked and graded and actually allows us to be much more size inclusive than what we were when we held inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll go from a double XS to a double XL and we're actually um, launching fully inclusive sizing in February of next year. Um, whereas before we would maybe hold stock in a size zero to a size eight or 10 because we just didn't know and we didn't want to sit on you know sizes double zero and sizes 14 because we just didn't know wh- whether our customer was there. And so, oh, and it turns out actually that they really are. That's the, the fascinating part is that both we serve both ends of the scale, which is really fascinating. So I think sustainability to me is how you think about um, creating a life that you can self-perpetuate. And in my business, I didn't want to be wasteful. When I first started out direct to consumer and we bought inventory up front, we had a really amazing sell through of like 70% um, at the end of the season, which is a 10 week selling period before you have to deal with markdown cadences. Mm -hmm. And that means that I'm sitting with, you know, 20 to 30% of stock at the end of the season. And you're either going to be selling that off price to like a Century 21 or, you know, TJ Maxx or whatever, which is damaging to the brand. Or you're going to be thinking about um, how you, you know, contribute to landfill, um, which is really damaging to the environment. And 8% of all landfill in the world is textiles, which is a staggering amount. Wow. And it didn't sit well with me. I just couldn't continue in that way. And so again, uh, I was like, well, I'm, you know, if this is the only way that I'm going to do it, then I'm not going to do it this way. Um, I've got to figure it out. So it took me about nine months to figure out how to produce on demand. And we have an incredible manufacturing partner to this day. She was the person we started with. She is a Hong Kong based, but she's Hong Kong Chinese lady who is a few years older than me. Um, but grew up in, um, Manhattan and funnily enough, went to the sister school, of my now husband's uh, boys' school. So so she grew up in New York. She kind of has the mentality of a New Yorker, very, very well-traveled. And I said, I believe the future of manufacturing is producing on demand and for larger companies at scale, producing just-in-time manufacturing. And she said, I totally agree with you. But it took me nine other conversations before I got to that point. So then once, you know, we had the conversation, she agreed with me. I was like, please, please, God, please let her actually be able to produce the quality level that I need. And, you know, thank God again, she did. It was like another moment of uh, magic. And still to this day, she's our main uh, operating partner, even though we have three other factories around the world that we work with now. We have LA, uh, Peru, and um, another factory in Shenzhen in China as well. So... um, being sustainable in my business has, it started with on-demand manufacturing and eliminating waste. It's gone to, you know, the dye techniques that we use and thinking about how water is being implemented in fashion manufacturing. It's gone to eliminating any single-use plastic from all of our packaging. Um, it's It starts in one place and it's an iteration all the time. And it's really important to me that we every single year get better and better and better. So now we have an annual sustainability report that we release every August to um, our customers and to the industry in general, just to kind of hold ourselves accountable and um, and to show people what we're doing and, and how proud we are of what we're doing. Um, from a personal standpoint, I think that sustainability is having the tips and tricks in your toolbox so that when you are feeling burnt out, you know what it takes and you have that trigger when you're feeling burnt out. So you don't get there 
but you're able to think to yourself, okay, what do I need right now? If I live anywhere near a beach, is it going for a beach? Is it taking a moment and sitting with my dog and having a cup of tea? Is it making sure that I am meditating? Have I slipped off my meditation? Um, is it working out? Is it, you know, taking the time to hang out with my partner or my child, whatever it is that refills and refuels you is what you need to be sustainable because we all have moments in our life that we feel as though, you know, it's like you're running on fumes and it's recognizing that before you get to that point and just being able to kind of take a breath and do something for yourself. Because at the end of the day, you're useless to everyone else around you. If you aren't the best version of yourself. And we can't be the best version of ourselves every minute of every day. But, you know, I think we all strive for that. Absolutely. And I mean, even in, in my life, and I think especially being an entrepreneur where you're, it's more, you need to sustain your, your life in terms of a long-term play. You're not working a nine to five, nine to eight job where you're just sitting there working. It's like, you have to make sure your energy, your mood, your life is all in, in good place for you to really perform as a leader and as an entrepreneur. Totally. So what you're saying, I mean, I'm still working through that in my own life is, is so key. And I, you know, you just had a baby boy, your first son, congratulations. You. you know, we have so many amazing mothers who listen, who are running their businesses or are aspiring to. And we get a lot of questions in terms of, you know, how's your life like now being a new mother and, you know, any tips for women who are trying to make that work? Yeah, I think um, I think a schedule for you and for your child is critical. I had Leo on March 2nd. So I had him on March 2nd and the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic on March 11th. So oh that was gosh. jarring to say the least. And I had uh, an eight, I mean, nothing is typical. So I had a, a tricky uh, labor in that I was induced and then I pushed and then I ended up having an emergency C-section. So I was exhausted. Oh from thing and I was like kind of out of it. Um, and then, you know, the WHO declared a global pandemic and, you know, we then had to go and quarantine in the Hamptons and it was like cold and miserable and dreary. And I was like, what is going on? I was like, having a child is really disruptive. You know, I mean, it wasn't obviously that it was just that everything happened at once. Um, the silver lining has been that I get to spend so much time with him and with my family, which is amazing. Um, but I think the number one thing that I've realized is getting your child on a schedule as early as possible as an entrepreneur helps you to be able to schedule time, you know, especially when they're little, they have, you know, they take three naps a day. Um, so they're sleeping for like at least four hours of your kind of like seven to seven working time. So you can really kind of plan calls, you can plan meetings, et cetera, et cetera, around that. And that's really, really critical. That has been for me at least. Um, and then I think it's like, your social life slightly takes a bit of a back seat. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, during COVID, it has anyway. But we haven't stopped traveling. Like, you know, we've been very much bi-coastal and that's been wonderful. But it does mean that actually you kind of have to pick and choose what it is that you do. Mm -hmm. And if your career is really important to you and your business, and of course your family is, um, at a certain point, and nobody ever wants to say this or hear it, but you kind of have to choose like, maybe you don't see friends as often or you don't see as many friends as you once did um, or you don't get to go out for dinners as often as you once did and you stay home more. Again, it's that point of like thinking about your sustainability and how long you're going to be able to go because it's a long road, A, being an entrepreneur and B, being a mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they right now he's seven and a half months old, so it's very physical. You know, he needs you to be present. He wants to see you. He wants to cuddle you all of that kind of stuff. And as they get older, it's going to be much more psychological in how you contribute to their development. So it's like preparing yourself for that long road ahead mm -hmm. and knowing that, you know, you, people are like, oh, you can have it all. You can do it all. And it's like, actually, I don't know. Maybe you can, but I don't know that you can do it all very, very well. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you have to kind of make that decision. And that's so helpful to hear because it's just, it seems crazy to be able to do everything all at once, right? It's like different phases of your life, like you mentioned. Like, this is a phase that you're in, you know, then you'll deal with the next phase. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I want to talk about, and I want to be mindful of our time together, is, you know, a lot of your brand is very much all about supporting women, empowering women. You've had incredible partnerships. I know you've teamed up with your dear friend, Meghan Markle, on a really successful SmartWorks partnership. And one thing that you've said, which, which really resonates with me, is it's so important for women to support women. And you've talked about how the world is an abundant place. 
And I would love to learn more about that because, you know, we hear, I mean, me and my sister have this conversation all the time where she's like, I've had really tough women bosses. You know, she doesn't feel like she's been supported. So I love what you mentioned. And I'd love to just dig deeper into, you know, your perspective and your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I have, I had that really tough female boss too. So I definitely understand what your sister's saying, but I think that, um, one bad apple doesn't mean that the whole orchard is is spoiled. And, um, I think that there was an old school way of doing things that was much more about like keeping other people down because there was only space for a few women at the top. And I think a, luckily now we're seeing that that isn't the case and that, you know, diversity in businesses, is really picking up speed. Um, and so you are seeing a lot more women who are being accepted at kind of the higher echelons of, um, of professional workplaces, which is very, very exciting. For me, the idea of women supporting women, I guess also goes way back to when I was a kid and seeing in the Middle East how um, a lot of the time you actually needed the women in your network not necessarily just to get ahead, but also kind of to sustain yourself. And I know myself that I have some wonderful male friends, but it's really my girlfriends and uh, those nearest to me that I that I get so much more from. And you know, you have a partner, and you have um, you know a husband, or, or you know the person that's so close to you that you live with day in day out, but. You can't share everything with that person because I think you lose a level of mystery, and I think that you also um, you you have different vantage points, and it's just sometimes really great to have your girlfriends to call upon. So I personally feel indebted to women in my lifetime. Not only do I uh, dress women, and you know I love doing that, and and um, I have the greatest girlfriends in the world who you know I might not. I won't see some of my friends in England for more than a year by the time I finally get home. But, you know, you pick up the phone and nothing ever changes. And that is uh, something extraordinary. And then I think about, you know, my career, like fashion is a very female centric uh, profession. And there have been really, really tricky women uh, in the business. And I think that's much more the old guard. But the new guard and some of the people that I'm most indebted to are extraordinary women with a similar mindset. So I discard anyone who um, kind of doesn't want to support another woman and forget about them immediately, because I know that personally, I wouldn't be where I am in my career if it weren't for the help of a vast number of women, not only who are my customers, but um, who are my friends, who are my colleagues, who um, have been a part of my journey from day one and, and continue to be a part of my journey. That's so beautiful. And I do agree with you. I, I do think things are changing and the mentality is changing. So, you know, it's, it's beautiful to see. And I want to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does that mean to you? Wealth is uh, twofold to me. Um, one part of it is freedom. So I think that, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, you have a level of freedom, right? You are choosing the path that you go down every single day. And um, I think that there is great wealth to that. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Wealth doesn't really mean finances to me at all. It's more just um, having the freedom and also having the health and the vitality mm -hmm. to be able to reach your fullest capacity, whatever that may be. And I think that also, I don't just mean physical health, I mean your mental health as well. And that is why it's so important to go back to that idea of having your tips and tricks in your toolbox that you can rely on when you feel as though you're getting a little bit, um, you know, burnt out and you need to stem the creativity again, because ultimately as entrepreneurs, you need to have a level of, a level of creativity and you have to, you need to have a level of confidence. Mm -hmm. And um, those things come from your mental well-being. So um, I think that, you know, your mental and physical health and also freedom really are about that. That to me is like having a wealthy life. Amen. That's so beautiful, Misha. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was such an honor to meet you and speak to you. Such a pleasure to meet you. And thank you for your very, very thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. 
To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.